This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. I should have turned that on. There we go. Um, so I'm delighted to welcome the panelists for this first panel. So um, we have Sherry Kutu, who is the chair of WorkFinder, Anna Maybank, the founder and CEO of Breakroom, just referred to, Stephen Mears, uh, the CEO of Big Society Capital, and Andrew Pakes, who is the deputy general secretary of Prospect. Would you all like to come and join me? Doesn't matter. Hi. Excellent. Welcome, everyone. So we've got 45 minutes. I'm not going to waste time on trying to introduce these um, very uh, professional people because they can do it themselves. So I suggest that um, we'll take each of you in turn. And if you want to um, introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, and give us some opening thoughts on what you think are the kind of the key opportunities to use technology for making work better. Um, should we start over here with you, Stephen? Great, thank you. Is that microphone working all right? Yes. Sorry. Okay, well, um, wave or shout if it goes wrong. So thank you very much for the introduction and thank you, Resolution, for the invitation. Very, very pleased to be here today. Uh, I'm Stephen Muir's CEO of Big Society Capital, which is a leading social investor in the UK. Uh, and it's also uh, relevant here that I wear another hat as chair of the Friends Provident Foundation, which is one of the other partners in this program. We've been uh, very pleased to work with Resolution over the last few years. Um, I'm going to try and give a bit of sort of context around uh, the wider field of in investing for impact, particularly in innovation and venture. I think um, others on the panel and in the room are much more expert than me on the specific cases that are showing real progress and are really exciting. So I'm going to try and instead paint a little bit of a wider picture and you'll get some more uh, specifics and grit from many of, many of the others here. Um, so our overall mission at Big Society Capital is to increase the amount of capital that's invested in tackling social challenges in the UK. And we have various uh, approaches we have for doing that, but a, a crucial one, the crucial sort of pillar in our strategy is impact venture. And that's so investing in funds that are then backing uh, potential high growth, high impact organizations and the worker tech field is sort of one part of that where we see um, a great deal of potential. And looking at that impact venture system, um, we're very excited about where that is at the moment. And the UK is definitely a sort of leading hub for some of that um, movement. Um, a way of illustrating that is uh, earlier this year, we launched a community called Impact VC, which essentially is for um, venture investors of all types who are serious about creating more social impact from what they do. 
Um, we, we found that here it's got a Europe-wide Europe reach, but the, the, the vast majority are in the UK. And we, in the first few weeks, we got hundreds and hundreds of people literally uh, joining that, far more than we expected. And the level of momentum and interest uh, over the last period has been really, really very impressive. Uh, and this is all about um, our wider strategy of trying to sort of bend the venture system in that ecosystem more towards impact to show how it, how taking social impact seriously can be a viable, sustainable and successful investment strategy commercially, while also delivering real scalable change through the kinds of organizations you're going to hear a lot about later on today. Um, but we're seeing in lots of fields, with WorkTech being just one example among others, um, real momentum in this sort, sort of area. And I think some of the themes of successful impact venture sort of change that we're, we're seeing in different areas of policy or different areas of social progress, which all, I think, apply in different ways to what we're going to talk about today, I'm just going to um, illuminate. So one thing we're seeing is where there's been uh, impressive sort of technological innovation in a particular broad field, people then, in a sort of almost a second wave, using that for greater social impact. Saying, okay, there's companies that are doing something differently. How can we take that insight, that different way of operating, and apply it in a way that is much more beneficial to those on low incomes, those who've traditionally been excluded, and so on? Um, big example, there's lots of this going on in the sort of fintech space. You'll all know there's you know, lots and lots of challenger banks, fintech functions, all these sort of huge wave of innovation there. But what we're now seeing is uh, people taking what's been learned from that process and applying it specifically to the challenge of providing financial services to people who've traditionally been excluded. So haven't been able to get insurance, haven't been able to get bank accounts, haven't been able to get affordable credit and so on. Um, so that's just an, an example of that sort of taking something that's been, been sort of tested in the broad market, if you like, and then applying it with an impact lens. I, I think um, we're going to talk later about education and skills. And I think that there is a really big opportunity there in this space. Um, there's been loads and loads of ed tech innovation going on for a while. How can more of the learning from that uh, be applied into the particular group of people and the particular challenges facing uh, um, certain industries, certain worker sectors and so on that we're going to talk about. I think you'll hear examples of people who are already doing that and progressing it um, today. Um, I think another sort of theme that we see in lots of the impact venture work we do is around sort of recutting information differently and providing it to different people, which then changes power relationships, changes options, increases choice, and increases yeah, the power that different people have. And again, you're going to hear lots of examples of that in the work tech space, but that's been going on more broadly across other fields of impact that we see, and I think is really, really exciting. And I say definitely very critical in this, this field. And, and a final point, which is perhaps slightly um, off the side of some of what we're going to talk about, but I think is, is relevant take, when you think about the impact we're trying to create. Um, there's also an increasing large desire for mainstream institutional investors to take more account of the impact that they're having when they invest in a whole range of companies. And actually, workers' rights, treating workers fairly, is increasingly important to large asset holders and wealth holders. And so I think there's something in here about what information can be provided, presented, uh, rankings, um, exposing bad practices, and so on. But using tech as a way of actually informing uh, the, the holders of a lot of large institutional stakes in all sorts of companies and using that to put pressure on to increase uh, the uh, well-being or way that uh, improve the way that workers are treated. It's a slightly different uh, take, but again, in other fields, particularly in the climate field, you see a lot of that going on. Uh, I wonder if a future wave of that might be in the work tech space as well. So I'll pause there and hand over to the rest of the panel. Brilliant, Stephen. Thank you. Um, right, let's move on to Anna. 
Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Anna. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Breakroom. Um, very proud to be one of the uh, uh, Resolution uh, Ventures portfolio. Um, and great to kind of pull together um, everyone here today and, and hear a bit of the kind of bigger picture, whereas my day-to-day -day at the moment is a lot of talking to employers. So <laughs> it's nice to kind of zoom out and think about what we're trying to achieve. Um, so at Breakroom, we're a platform that helps um, lower paid frontline workers find better quality jobs. Um, the way that we, I'm sorry, it's back. Am I really echoey and unbearable? It's all okay. Okay. Um, the way that we do that is to help um, workers compare their jobs by taking a 30 question quiz that covers all the important aspects of um, frontline work. So pay, hours, flexibility. Um, we use that data to rate their jobs and help um, recommend better places for them to work. So since we launched in uh, 2020, um, more than 700,000 um, UK workers have used Breakroom to compare their jobs. And we rate publicly uh, more than 5,000 UK employers. So shorthand, Louise was talking about this earlier. We're a little bit like Glassdoor, but focused on um, lower paid um, hourly workers. Um, we then work with employers to help them improve their jobs and recruit better quality candidates. Um, I guess my, my take on um, what the future of work looks like and um, how uh, technology can, can help improve that is obviously all about how we use the kind of data that we're collecting and, and publicly publishing to uh, do some of the things that Stephen was just talking about and, and shed a light on um, what it's really like to work in uh, lower paid roles and then to use that data to help um, uh, applicants and uh, workers uh, make change in, in their own jobs, but also help employers change. Um, I think, uh, you know, some of the, we've, we've now collected a very large amount of information directly from workers, which I, I think is, is unique because typically, you know, if you're, if you're collecting ESG data, that's coming from um, a, a kind of top down within a company. And what we've done is create a mechanism for collecting data bottom up. Um, I, sadly, I think a lot of what Louise was talking about um, earlier is definitely reflected in the experience of um, frontline work. So more than 70% of people who've taken the break room quiz say that they think that head office has no idea what's going on on the front line, which is concerning. Um, more than 50% of people say that they find it hard to change their shifts at the last minute. Uh, more than 30% of people say that they're doing work that they're not paid for. So I think our, our data collected from workers really unfortunately reflects a lot of what um, Louise was talking about earlier. I think there is, you know, we are starting to leverage that information to get in front of employers, which is incredibly exciting. So, you know, we started with this mission of helping turn every job into a good one. And we started by collecting and building that mechanism for, for collecting that information. Um, and now we are working with um, an increasingly large number of employers who want to monitor their break room profile, who want to recruit with us. Um, and so we're starting to see, you know, the beginnings of getting in front of employers and having serious conversations about, you know, this is how you're, you're rated, this is how you compare to other people. We're providing them with information that they, they don't have um, and they can't get from their own workforce. Um, so I think there's the beginnings there of using data to, to shine a light on, um, uh, on what working conditions look like uh, that's both beneficial to workers and to employers. The other thing that I'm starting to see is the scale of opportunity for operational change within um, businesses and employers themselves. So a lot of our data is actually showing 
operational problems within a business that is ultimately bad for workers, but also bad for companies. And I do think companies recognize that, but they often don't know what to do about it. And I think, again, the opportunity there for technology is, is making some of those operational um, changes. You know, shift patterns is a, a, the, the most obvious example where uh, more than 50% of people not only find it hard to, to change their shifts, but they're only getting their rotor a week in advance. That should be a solved problem and because we have the technology to make that easier. Um, but the reason it's not is often because of the, some of the operational challenges that businesses and employers have and some of the underinvestment in um, sort of uh, improving that operational efficiency and productivity within a business. So I think there's both some opportunities there and also some, some challenges that we're, we're starting to see from, from working directly with employers. Thanks, Anna. That's fascinating. It reminds me there was a very interesting study done in the US by some academics um, on Gap. You might have read it. Um, yeah. They were looking into Gap had this kind of just-in-time scheduling software and the, the kind of terrible effect that it had on workers' lives. And they piloted in some Gap stores um, predictable scheduling, you know, with sort of four weeks' notice. And obviously, not only did the workers benefit and enjoy their jobs more and there was lower staff turnover, but the, the quality of the stores improved, you know, and actually revenue in those stores increased. And it makes you think, well, why did chief executives not already sort of know about this? And it, it turned out that um, it wasn't that they were sort of burying their heads in the sand or um, that they were just determined to wait, make their workers miserable. What the researchers realized was that Every time a kind of board level or senior exec went to visit a store, the store knew a couple of days in advance. So they just scheduled extra people in so that by the time the senior people arrived, the stores looked perfect, gleaming. And so if you were running Gap, you would think there's no problem at all here. You know, our, our scheduling system is very efficient and cost effective and the stores always look beautiful. So, yeah, it kind of shows why getting this ground level information from workers is um, could be really useful from a kind of commercial perspective as well. Um, great. Right. Let's move on to Sherry. Thank you. Um, so, thank you. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Service here. Um, hello. Can, is it all echoey and horrible as well? No, I got thumbs up. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so, I'm Sherry, um, and uh, I'm here with my superpower hat on, which is a renamed work finder. Uh, we changed the name because people weren't looking for work, but they felt they had superpowers. Um, and um, the story with superpower actually started with a grant from UFI. Um, and they gave a grant to a charity called Founders for Schools to help um, people on their transition to work. Um, and it's very much a platform. It's a platform that serves um, skill seekers. We're very much about skills first um, rather than academic based. And it also serves employers who are trying to recruit additional people to their team, but also upskill people to their uh, to their team um, and it absolutely uses tech my um, my background before this was in helping companies like LinkedIn um, go from zero to 500 million and and helping them structure their databases with tech so that you could see the skills that people had so you could help them uh, them being the people grow their grow their skills. Um, and it was when I was working within the sort of school sector that we thought there's a much better way of doing this recruiting and up, upskilling. 
Um, as an investor, I like to do investments in important things. And I've been an impact investor for 25 years. Um, and I wish everybody were impact investors because it clearly would make the world a much better place. So um, in terms of the things that we're doing at, um, at Superpower, we've integrated um, most of the databases that are available. Um, and their taxonomies. And um, we have a recommendation engine, WebLook 2, one um, that serves people who are thinking about changing their roles. And it serves them recommendations of other roles that they could think about. It um, serves them courses that help them be better at their role. And that is, again, using databases of career, career trajectories. Um, it uh, recommends mentors to them that are in their target, uh, their target area, and it also recommends master classes so they can get comfortable with the place where they um, might want to be later. Um, for the uh, workers themselves, and, and all of this is AI and ML, probably a little bit more ML than AI and not very much uh, Gen, uh, gen AI. Um, uh, for the skill seekers, it's improving their skills um, by about 30x over 18 months. Um, we're helping um, uh, women, like one of our case studies is a, a young woman called Notion, um, who we are tracking 2,200 skills that she has on her profile, which means that when she applies to th things, um, we can um, help that employer understand her very well. If the employer rejects her, um, we give her a diagnostic of who the, re who the employer did not reject, and we recommend courses that she can take that are free, that allow her to um, improve her skills. Um, it in the industry at the moment, this industry is so broken. It's just shocking. On average, uh, apparently it takes 300 applications of a young person to get a role. Um, on ours three years ago, again, if you come and you're not super tagged, then it takes about 60 um, different applications to get a role. 80% of employers left to their own devices ghost. Uh, young people who apply, which is fundamentally wrong and yes, should be known. Um, and we set about wanting to stop that. So the employer who posts a role with us has 72 hours um, before they get a notice from us saying, do you have any idea the catastrophic effects of you ghosting someone who has applied to you has on that person? Um, and um, they're given a notification and 24 hours to respond. If they don't, then we take that applicant away from them. And we inform the applicant that they should go to a different employer um, and that some of the things they can do to improve their skills. We have bias alerts for the employers um, sometimes, who need a lot of help. I had no idea how much help employers needed when we started this out. Um, but. Um, we let them know if there's a bias um, on gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic, or disability that we detect in their behaviors or in their role descriptions. 
and we advise them on what they need to do to improve it so that um, they, their behavior and their content no longer contains that bias. Um, very much humans in the loop. If they have neglected to put compensation in, which means no sane person is going to apply, um, we let them know that if they actually want to be successful and fill that role, they'll put in compensation and we query all of the databases that there are and we let them know how much compensation they should pay because sometimes they don't know, so we give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, it is so easy to see the really important and you know good things that you can use tech for in this industry to help not only people who are seeking to upskill themselves and get themselves out of a, a position that they feel uncomfortable with, but also to help employers fill those roles. There's a million open roles in the UK. If we filled those open roles, the uh, benefit to our GDP would be about 40 billion pounds per annum. Um, the cost of youth unemployment is about 7 billion pounds per annum. And the cost of just open jobs uh, is, again, another six, seven billion pounds per annum. So it's not just damaging young people's lives. It's also impairing our ability and our competitive advantage. So I love what you guys are doing. Thank you for doing it. Uh, and I think it's really important. But um, it's not just a thing about the young people. The recruiters and the employers themselves need some help. And the best thing in the world is to use tech and AI to help them do the things that they want to do. Thank you. <clears throat> That's great. Sherry, thank you. The FT did a big survey of young people a couple of years ago and um, it was like a qualitative survey so people just wrote I thought they'd write maybe a couple of hundred words people wrote long essays about um, what they were worried about and how they kind of felt their lives were going and it was really striking to me how many young people talked about the kind of brutality and sort of really sort of dehumanizing um, feeling of trying to apply for a job, particularly when you're young. And yeah, just feeling that there's no one, there's no one on the other end of that transaction. I mean, what an awful way to enter the world of work. So I think there might not be humans on the other end well, of right. many of those platforms. Exactly. Which is, Increase, um, which is increasingly wrong. so. But going yeah. down to two, uh, you know, two applications to get a role is where we are with the use of AI at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it'd be nice if you could get it further down. But this, that's what has been achieved already and gives me reasons to be hopeful about our futures. Great stuff. Thank you. Um, Andrew. Good morning, everyone. So I think I'm here for, I think, two reasons. One is to be a representative of one of the oldest pieces of the puzzle for this good, better work agenda, which is uh, the great trade union movement of, our, of ours. And secondly, I'm a tech optimist, and sometimes I try and reconcile these two competing things around what's happening. Um, but I, I feel really privileged to be in this room. Uh, I come from a, a social justice and a work background. Uh, and too much of this whole debate around technology, AI at the moment, looks at the issue around trouble. But in, in my learning and starting point, there's a, some of you may be aware, a great US civil rights activist called John Lewis, who coined the phrase good trouble. So I, I feel very privileged to be in a room of people who are committed to the cause of good trouble uh, and making tech work for us rather than us work for the tech itself. So look, there's a couple of things I will talk about from that vantage point around trade unions and where do we fit into this. 
Uh, and I think this, this ecology of making work better needs to involve all of us in the solutions. Uh, I think speaking to your, you know, the previous point, what Sherry said about an industry that's broken, I think for too many people in Britain today and around the world, the economy full stop is broken. And if we want to address some of these bigger challenges we all face around anxiety, around loneliness, around agency, around trust, the way to do that is to start by solving the issue around how people fit into the world of work and what work means to them. Uh, and too often, this big debate we have, whether it's you know robots are coming for our jobs, whether it's about the huge economic change and tectonic plates that are they're going to shift in the economy, much of which can largely be true, people hardly ever fit into that conversation. And that's the bit that really worries me. You know, when you look at the government's AI safety summit, representatives of civic society and worker organisations were largely silent and absent. When you look at the government's AI strategy, which looks at tech and the economy as a whole, it is typically focused on, the, in a bad way, I think your way was good, in this bad way of superheroes, that there's only a small number of people who will have the skills and the ability to succeed and code and create the future, that by implication, the rest of us are secondary to that or second fiddle to that process. And I think anything which creates a discussion or debate which makes us feel othered or separate from our future is going to create a discord that we already see within our society. And to me, that's the real power. So how do we use and harness our good trouble to do that? So there's three challenges that we would look at, I think, to try and resolve from this with your help in terms of the future of work. And I say this from a union that uh, represent, we represent around 160,000 people, primarily in the private sector, but also government specialists, lots of people working in tech itself. So we have a growing tech workers branch of around two to 3,000 people in places like Spotify, Twitter, and others. We work with some of our international sibling unions because we know some of this big tech is transnational and our responses as a movement need to be transnational as well. And it's brilliant to see so many trade unions beginning to get into this space. And I will embarrass completely now by making a shout out to John Wood, who is in the room. John, can you give us a wave? Brilliant. John is here from the Trade Union Congress and leads their digital lab. I would encourage you to ignore me and speak to him for large parts of the day because John has a brilliant overview of how the international and domestic union movement are doing that. So what are my three challenges? My three challenges are people, place and power. And if we're, unless we can use technology to address those, we're going to fail to succeed in our quest to make good or better work for the majority of people in this country. So what do I mean by that? People is what I'm going to talk about. Technology needs to be about the prism of people and how it adds to our human endeavor. And too often, government strategies, business strategies are around technology being implemented because of the bottom line or because investor capital has seen different ways of doing work. It's about saving costs. It's about driving shareholder value. It's about moonshots for society when governments are looking for distractions from their wider economic performance and its impact on the rest of us. What it isn't about is how it adds to human well-being. It isn't about the kind of worth we have. Around about two-thirds of our 2033 workforce are already in work. And how much time do we spend in that balance of debate between investing in schools, which is critically important, to come out with an adult skills solution, which addresses most of us? Now, I've travelled here this morning from one of Britain's lowest paid cities, where warehousing, call centres and logistics dominates our private sector employment. 
We know in three to five years, half of jobs in call centers will be gone because AI and technology will make a better service, better service for us as customers. If you regard that as a technology discussion, it makes perfect sense. Improve something for your customer base, use the technology, save money and create a virtue. If you stop there and don't include the workforce, what happens to those half of jobs in a low-skilled or low-paid economy and how we get that? And that in itself, to me, tells a really easy story about if you don't involve people in your narrative or your stories that you're constructing and you make sure that we are outside of that conversation with no concerns about our impact, we shouldn't expect any other outcome than people being distrustful or anxious about the way brilliant technology could play in helping them because they've only experienced it as being something bad to them in terms of what's happened. Second challenge is about place. The brilliance of our technology means that we can work from just about anywhere, but actually jobs have to be done somewhere. And the big fear is that we will end up like we've done in previous forms of economic change, where old industries have died in some places and capital itself has been the sole derivative of where that new industry comes from. Because actually we need jobs in cities like mine. We need jobs in the Northeast, in the Midlands and elsewhere. And the ability of technology to allow the economy to happen anywhere negates from an experience of where it happens to happen somewhere. So there has to be a place-based policy approach to this to understand how it helps youngsters get opportunities and then and their older generations to get pride and place out of the work they do. And finally, it's about power. I'm from a union. It's always about power. Who makes the choice? Who gets to edit where the data lives and how it's used? And how do those things come about? And actually, I think the things that some of the most brilliant, wonderful examples that Resolution Ventures has helped support and many in this room is about letting that sun shine in. It is about co-production and co-value, the cooperatives and mutuals in this room, the mutual experiences, the kind of examples we already heard are about trying to give people a sense of dignity or pride about the choices available to them. And unless we address that in a way that government policy currently fails to do, we're going to set ourselves up for failure in terms of how those policies uh, get about. And we see that every day in our work, and John will do it for other unions here as well. We've seen, even in some of the most tech driven things. We represent workers in Twitter who were on Christmas Eve last year digitally locked out from their workspaces. So when we talk about people being able to work from home and have all the flexibility we want, it also means they can be turned off by their employer at a moment's notice. What is that physical connection that happens to them? When we represent workers at the likes of Spotify who work across multiple countries, what means that workers in this country have power and have dignity here to be able to work with their colleagues and derive futures that make for them? When companies decide to invest in AI and new technology, how are we sure that it's adding to our well-being and dignity as opposed to just deriving value elsewhere in it? And what has frightens me most is that we are walking down a pathway where technology is done by the giants and those who have power, not people who are excluded from power. But what excites me most in this space is the kind of work you're all doing in this room alongside unions, alongside mutuals, alongside others to try and redefine what this future is. I was saying to someone at the very beginning, and I'll end there on this point, which is we have spent so long playing catch up in terms of the impacts of what's happening. And I'm really pleased this talks about better work rather than future work, because the future work is already here. So this is about how do we make work outcomes better for people for us. We've got to get ahead of it, because actually 
Better work isn't just an end in itself, though it is important as an end. It is part of the process that defines how we build a better, more connected, more inclusive, democratic society for all of us. Because if we have that respect at work, that ability to earn and learn and share with our families and our communities, all of us benefit, including the businesses investing. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Um, that did feel like a round of applause moment, didn't it? Rat rousing. Um, so you've made the you've made the case there for why we might want an awful lot of investors' money to be flowing into technology that makes work better, gives workers more information, more sort of power that sort of tilts those scales a bit. So let's kind of discuss a bit how how to make that happen and what are the kind of barriers to making that happen. I'm, I'm really curious to learn more about the, the kind of the, the social investment space. And um, I mean, maybe you two, actually, um, Sherry could, could speak to this. What needs to happen to enable a lot more capital to kind of flow into ideas like this? Because clearly, you know, if you're a company like Deliveroo or Amazon, you have no problem in raising vast amounts of capital um, in order to deploy technology, which arguably makes the quality of work worse for lots of people. So what, what needs to happen or what is happening or, what, or what's not happening? What are the barriers to kind of facilitating a rush of, of money into this space? Um, very, very briefly, and then I'll hand over to others. I think um, what we're trying to encourage, and, and we are seeing some signs of, is it's almost a mindset shift, actually. And um, I still get at you know, events or conversation with people saying, oh, aren't you always having to make a trade-off between your financial returns and your social impact? And that's fine for some investors, and it's fine for you, big size of capital, but if we're running a pension fund, we can't accept any trade-off because we've got a duty to maximize returns to pensioners, many of whom in, you know, are quite low income themselves and so on and so on. Um, and you know, in some cases that is true, but when you actually look across a, a, a range of areas, be it work tech, but also beyond, actually it isn't a simple trade-off and frequently impact is actually a source of value. And the commercial success of many organizations is tied into their ability to create impact. And that's definitely the example on the panel here. If if you're going to reach more people, deliver more value to them, more benefit for the workers, that's how the company will itself succeed. And there are a whole load of areas where it is not a trade-off. There is a correlation. Uh, and as long as um, the organization that's being invested in, the, the organization is staying true to its, its impact mission, that it can also be aligned with commercial value. So the sort of uh, the, the, um, the mindset shift that's needed is looking for where is it that those things can come together? What pools of capital are impact interested in impact and there are more and more and more of those whether that's foundation endowments or yeah certain pension funds or wealthy families individuals lots more people who wish to generate positive impact in their money and there are definitely more examples appearing of where impact is also a source of commercial value you can bring some of that together it's not the case everywhere this is not a sort of panacea there are areas where there are genuine trade-offs and choices but equally there's bits where the two can can go together and if i look at our portfolio a lot of the impact stars the organizations that are achieving outsize impact for large numbers of people are also financially pretty successful in one way or another. Great. Um, Anna, tell us about the, the pursuit of commercial success as well as impact. How easy is that? Um, uh, you know, I don't actually think about it that frequently because it's just so obvious. Um, but, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. But I, I mean, what Stephen's just said is that that's not always 
uh, you know, there's a we've got this bridge to uh, cross in terms of that becoming obvious to the, lots of people into the mainstream. Um, so maybe I'm the worst person to ask. I, I, in terms of sort of how to get more people thinking in the way that the Resolution Foundation has been trying to think. If you look at the kind of traditional VC industry, really it's a fashion industry, right? So like at the moment, what's in fashion is AI, whatever that means, <laughs> right? There was a point where Deliveroo earned a lot of money because what was in fashion was the gig economy. Like when I first started my career, this is going to sound really old now. The thing that was in fashion was something called Web 2.0. <laughs> and like basically you just pitch the same thing and put a different moniker in front of it. And like, I think the other thing is that those trends tend to be, you know, the, the, the old school trend of VC has also been whose problems are we solving? We're solving the problems of people who can build stuff. Oh, that tends to be young white men who are, have traditionally been engineers, right? And so I'm not sure I have a full kind of answer to like how we solve this, but I think it's partly about you know, what's interesting about what the Resolution Foundation have, have done here is to say, okay, we're going to try and solve problems for people who aren't from that community and we're going to pick a theme and we're going to try and explain why that theme is matters and why there's a big opportunity there. And I think that's, that's very contrary to how the traditional VC industry works how you get more kind of LPs invested in that and thinking about that, that I'm thinking that I'll see them. Um, but yeah, those are some of the kind of my experience of, of pitching in this industry has been. Great, thank you. And Sherry, you've been doing impact investing for 25 years. Do you have any thoughts on how to kind of suck more money into this, this sector? Uh, well, how about attract more money into the <laughs> sector? Um, I was also on the Impact Investing Commission um, that was looking in, into this. Um, one of the, at the moment, there are mechanisms in the public realm. So I'm a chair of the remuneration committee at uh, Pearson, and we are asked by our institutional investors to prove that we do good things, and we've built it into our bonus and also our long-term incentive plan. But that's just public companies, which is not the vast majority of companies. So for private, I think um, private equity is probably a bit difficult, but I know that there's been an accord, but I think holding them to account would be helpful. For VCs, um, really heartening to hear what, what you said earlier about the impact in um, investing. Um, if we could get the pensions um, it, there's a, a, a move to bring money from the pensions that invest everywhere but here and in everything but our private companies. Um, if they could, if one of the things that made them um, uh, more easily invest in here was that it brought about the circular economy and made the world uh, a, a better place, that would be brilliant. So I think that the pensions being released could be massive. An impact that they could have uh, on is if you tied it to it being impactful at a societal level, uh, that would be brilliant. Um, I like, as a you know, as a director of a large company, I like being held to account, and I like being asked, um, "Are you sure that you're doing things that make the world a greener place or a s? You know, we're usually more s." Um, and I think we need to be clear about how we're doing that, how we build it into our products and how we live it, how we um, structure 
an increase in the development and the coaching of staff who were from disadvantaged backgrounds. I think we can do that as employers and um, we should celebrate the employers that do that and the investors that ask for that as, as well. So you know, at a systemic level, we procure from you. A government could say, I'm not going to have this contract with you unless you do that. They should. Um, as a creator of companies, I want them to do that because I don't want the bad guys to win who have flaky um, corporate governance structures and who don't take good responsibility with AI and their tech. I don't want them to win and they shouldn't win. And we control it. We buy it. We invest in it. So if you buy it or you invest in it, you are in control. So I would, I would ask all of us to think about what we can do. Good stuff. Um, this is quite a short panel. It's only 45 minutes. We've only got five left. So I think let's, um, if you had any questions, I think you need to save them for the, for the discussions that will be coming up um, or indeed for a later, a later panel. Um, I think let's just have a kind of a slight broadening out to a, to a big picture because I'm conscious the rest of the day will also be quite focused on the details. I mean, Andrew, you talked about this sense that actually a lot of people are kind of fearful and mistrustful about technology and about how it might change their prospects for getting work and the quality of their work in the future. Um, I was in Sweden recently for a reporting trip, actually for the, the book that I'm working on. Um, and everyone that I mentioned this to kind of looked at me blankly and they were like, really? No, we we love tech here. You know, bring it on, more robots. Yes, please, like, let's do it. And I thought it was really striking that actually you know, there are, there is a potentially kind of different future in which we feel much more optimistic about technology and, and what, what kind of underlying conditions need to exist in order to make that possible, whether that's about having a sense that you have a voice in the workplace and how this thing is implemented, or whether it's just that you trust that your safety net is sufficient to kind of hold you through a period of disruption. So I wonder if each of you have like one big picture thought on what needs to change, maybe outside of the of the kind of technology space itself, but you know, a, a kind of big thought about what 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 kind of country or or policy needs to be different to help us navigate this with more confidence. Andrew, do you want to start? Sarah knows that saying Sweden is like catnip to me in, in terms of the economy because it is so. Uh, we do a lot of work with our Swedish sibling unions. And what struck me on probably about six or seven years ago in one of my early trips to the Swedish movement was they've got this great phrase, actually the, the Swedish prime minister used to say it, Ed Miliband used it for a while as well. So it's come over, I'm not the only one who said it, which is that uh, workers should not fear the new machines. They should fear the old ones. And it strikes me as a really interesting thing about the whole psychology of Sweden, who know as a small country, the only way they can afford the high level of social benefit and welfare that they share as a national characteristic is to export more and sell more because they're a small country. To export more and sell more, they need to innovate because they always need to be ahead of the game because they're not a big trading block. The only way they innovate is by investing in their people so that their workforce as a whole can deliver that innovation. And then by doing that, they then create the value throughout their companies, not just high level, to sell more, to pay more taxes. And through paying more taxes, they have a better quality of life than us. So it's that virtual win-win. 
And I see this completely as a win-win. If we can solve together, so my big plea is always, we often approach this as a question about technology, when really at a bigger level, we're talking about change management or human relations. The technology is a vehicle, and we've seen two, three really good examples already on the panel in, the, in this room that when people wish to, we can use technology to create liberation, dignity, and respect for people in ways they've never experienced before. The power of this technology is greater than anything we've seen before in many ways. So it can solve problems if it has human endeavor. So my great plea is let's make this about social partnership. The win-win is that workers and business and innovators together, we can control our future if we choose it. Thanks, Andrew. Sherry? I completely agree with what you're saying. I think it's fantastic. Um, so I, I wrote down mindset um, and um, I've been amazed at how capable we are as humans of reconfiguring ourselves. Um, that could be called upskilling, it could be called learning. Um, we used to think that learning stopped once you were finished university or you were finished school, um, but our, we continue to accelerate our learning throughout our lives and that's getting harder. So um, I think for me, um, invest in the reconfiguration of adults' skills and um, experience so that they don't fear um, the the machines um, and you know the old machines and the old way of doing things will stop and they will it will stop at an accelerating pace but our ability as humans to adapt ourselves is infinite so let's think about empowering people to um, understand the mindset that that is the case and that they control it and they control the pace that they can learn um, and make sure that employers who could be thought of as an educational institution in itself, that they, um, they, bear, they bear in mind that they need to invest in their people as well. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, right. Wow, one, one, uh, one, right, one big thought. Um, in about 30 seconds. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> I think we've got to continue pushing down this path of showing that there is this huge shared interest in better quality jobs for just both workers and for employers. Like the, the bigger break room grows, the more and more that's just clear to me in the data that we collect, where there's this huge overlap between, you know, this is a bad situation for a worker, but it's also costing a, a business money or they're not making as much money as they could be doing if they changed how they were working. And I think the more evidence we can show of that, the closer we'll get to proving what Stephen was talking about earlier of like actually impact and, and profit are not, um, uh, they're not working against each other, they're working together. And I think the, you know, the, the more we keep talking about that, the better data we've got about it, the more there is going to be a slow kind of cultural shift towards that. And I think, you know, people younger than us are going to see that as, just see that as obvious. And I think, um, I think that's got, got to be where we kind of continue to, to push. Great stuff, thank you. And Stephen, last word to you. Yeah, oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to loop right back to what Gavin was saying, actually, in the intro session about the why, why resolution do this work tech ventures work as alongside the like, heavy policy analysis piece. Um, because I think in the, we clearly need all sorts of policy changes to drive forward the, the, the agenda we're talking about here. And I think one of the things that what we've talked about on this panel can do is uh, open, the, open up the window of possibility by showing 
to, to government, to policy makers, decision makers, actually, there are different ways of doing things. These examples exist. Breaking exists. Super exists. There are models here that you can then design your regulatory frameworks, your policy frameworks uh, to, to, to point in a different direction. You don't have to just uh, you know, do what's already happening or what the, the you know, three big tech companies in the world tell you you can do. There's actually some other models which you can use as uh, sort of painting the space where policy can operate and expanding uh, the window of policy choices, which then enable the bigger, bigger ships which can move the whole dial in, in the right direction. So that, that um, synergy between innovation and policy change, I think, is really critical. Wonderful. All right. Well, on that note, I will wrap up this first panel. Thank you so much for listening. Um, please give the panel members a, a round of applause and I will hand over for the next one. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.